We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the Pew Bible, and you find Revelation 19 on page 893 or 1039. When's the last time you went to a wedding? Some of you maybe this year. I can't be certain, but I think maybe Bob and Rita's daughter's wedding was the last one. No? We've been doing... Oh, yeah, I did one a couple of years ago. That's right. Weddings are always exciting things. What's interesting to me is that in the Western world, and I don't know about other places around the world, but especially in the U.S., the wedding is all about the bride. You know, it's all about the bride. Think about modern weddings and how bride-centric they truly are. Think about all the magazines, Modern Bride or, you know, Utah Valley Bride or whatever. Just a quick uh, Google search produces all kinds of bridal magazines. But you know what you don't see? You don't see a magazine for the groom. And kind of the idea is that the groom, he's just kind of there. Sometimes he's, he's helpless and without the direction of his mom or his, his fiance or her mother that he doesn't know what to do. I actually found one bridal magazine had this, you know, is your man struggling? Does he, is he unsure about outfit ideas? We'll just point him our direction where our handy planning features will get him prepped and ready for the big day in no time. So there is no comparable wedding industry for men. There is no television show saying yes to the dress. I was trying to think. I was like, the only thing I could come up was like, be cute in the suit or don't sucks in the tux. Or so I was trying to come up with, but there is no say yes to the dress. When you talk to somebody about a wedding, what do they always comment? Oh, the bride. She looked beautiful. She was radiant. Her dress. It was wonderful. They never say, you know, the, the, the groom. He, he, was, he was handsome, you know. His face was beaming. People never talk about the groom. I actually heard one person say this, that the groom in a wedding is like the bathroom in an art gallery. You have to have one, but nobody's there to see it. So there's this idea that in a wedding, it's all about the bride. Now, there are all kinds of weddings. They're big weddings. They're small weddings. They're expensive, extravagant weddings. They're cost-effective weddings. They're religious weddings. They're civil ceremonies. And this morning, our passage in Revelation 19 presents us with an analogy. It says heaven is a lot like a marriage, specifically a feast that takes place. And this is commonly referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which John presents us with this picture of this great celebratory feast. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to stand as we read Revelation 19. We're going to begin in verse 6, in which John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down on his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. For I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Now this feast that John speaks of is a wedding feast. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. So there are two analogies that John is using. And basically what he's doing, he's like, I can't describe to you what heaven is like. But you know about these things. And so I'm going to try to use these things to communicate something of the truth of what will be experienced in heaven. So he gives to us this picture of a great wedding feast. Now, one of the reasons why this is such a powerful image is that these people are living in a particular place, in a particular time in which the prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread, is not just a phrase, but it's a true and honest prayer of people who are experiencing food scarcity. So the prayer that God would provide is a real and honest prayer. So imagine that that's your life, and the question is, will we be able to feed ourselves? Will we be able to feed our children tomorrow, the next day, or next week? The idea of a feast is a glorious promise. Because the idea of a feast is that food is always readily available. Now, I like to eat. And I get excited about food. I get excited about all kinds of different foods. But here's the interesting thing. I eat, and no matter how much I eat, sometimes I eat a lot. Three, four, six hours later, I need to eat again. If you have a teenage boy or a preteen like we have, they're hungry like every two hours. And they just constantly consume food. Well, the idea of a feast is as soon as that need presents itself, the need is met immediately. The reason why every single need is met in heaven and the idea of a feast is used is because God will be with his people. He will live in the midst of his people. And whenever a need presents itself because we have God and we're living in his presence, that need can be immediately met. So it's this idea of a feast. But it's not just a feast. It's a wedding feast. So the second analogy is that heaven will be like the intimacy of marriage. And so the idea here is that at this particular point in time, weddings, marriages, were not like what we experience in contemporary society. There were a a multi-step process that a, a young man and a young woman would go through before their marriage would be ultimately finalized and consummated. First, the first step was that there would be a formal engagement. And this would be a formal agreement, an announcement, a declaration by both families. An agreement would be made of the father of the groom and the father of the bride that their son and daughter were going to enter into this particular relationship. That at some point in the future, they would one day marry each other. That these were always arranged marriages. You didn't fall in love and marry the person of your dreams. But your father, he picked who you were going to marry, husband and bride. So there was this formal step in which there would be agreement and a declaration made. The second step was called the betrothal. Now, this was a ceremony that would be held at the bride's parents' house. And in this ceremony, the two families and the bridal couple, they made promises 
They covenanted and committed to one another in front of witnesses. The bridal couple were now regarded legally as husband and wife, even though they did not experience the benefits of living and sleeping together. That would come later. So after this betrothal, this binding pledge to one another that actually took a legal divorce proceeding to end, the groom would return to his house and the bride would remain with her family. About a year later, the actual marriage ceremony would take place. The bridegroom, with his parade, would then leave and go to the house of his bride. Oftentimes, this would be done at night, and so they would be carrying torches with them. So it created this real big spectacle that people could see even from a long way. And so the news might go out, the groom is coming for his bride. If you're here at Christmas... Park City Ski Resort does a torchlight parade in which several ski instructors go at the top of payday lift, I think, and they ski down with torchlights. And what you see is you see the lights going back and forth across the mountain. Well, a bride, she might see the torches off in the distance, and she realizes that her groom is coming, that he's been faithful, that he's been true, that he's kept himself for her. And so he arrives, and then the whole group would go in and be a spectacular display. They would take the bride back to the groom's house where the wedding and this wedding banquet would be held. So the question is, why the long delay? Why from the engagement to the betrothal to the actual wedding ceremony is such a long delay? The reason is there's a lot of work to be done. Now, when Lori and I got married, there was a lot of work to be done. But I did very little of it. Lori's mom did most of it. She actually called me. We got married on May 5th. So it was Cinco de Mayo, and so she called me one night. She said, we decided what we're going to do for the reception. We're going to have fajitas and margaritas. And I was like, not what I was thinking, but you're planning it. You're doing all the work. You get to have the final say-so. That's not the case. See, the groom and his family had a lot of work to do. The groom would return. The man who was engaged to be married would go to his father's house, and he had to prepare a place for his bride. There was a building project that would be undertaken. And during this building project, the bridegroom would anticipate and get excited about the arrival of the woman that he was pledged to marry. Think about it. As he would build the walls of this particular place or do the work to pour the foundation, he was thinking of the one that he had committed himself to. And he was readying this place for her. Just like that, Jesus, the groom of the church, Tells his disciples before he ascends to the presence of the Father in John chapter 14, he says, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And so the image Jesus is saying is, I'm the bridegroom. There's going to be a period, a delay, in which I'm going to prepare a place for you. And like a bridegroom, Jesus awaits his bride's arrival with excitement and anticipation. The second thing happened during this waiting period. There was the engagement, the betrothal, and then there was the payment of a wedding price. Now, the idea is here that sometime a price would be set for the bride. And so after the bride had committed himself in front of the witnesses, he would go to the family, he would gather together the resources, and he would present this payment to the bride's parents. Now, some people don't like this idea. Especially in the particular time, the particular place where we find ourselves having been influenced by all kinds of cultural forces. People say this, this just doesn't recognize the value of the woman. It makes her property to be bought and sold. But that's not the case. 
What you have to understand is that the bride's family is losing a valuable asset. Their daughter will no longer be with them to work and to help provide for the needs of her parents and for the extended family. We see this in Proverbs 31, in which the author writes, he says, a wife of noble character who can find. And then he goes on to say she's worth far more than rubies because a good wife is a hard and willing worker is worth her weight in gold and silver. So it's a recognition of the, the, the treasure that the groom is being entrusted with. And he's trying somehow to communicate that by compensating the parents with this bridal price. Now, throughout the New Testament, this idea of a price being paid shows up. In Acts chapter 20, we read, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says, You were bought at a price. And you are not your own. First Peter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We've even seen this in the book of Revelation, chapter five, in which the song that God's redeemed people sing is you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you are slain and it's with your blood you purchase men from every tribe and language and people and nations. So Jesus has bought his bride and paid the price. But it's not with silver or gold or precious stones, but it was the blood that he shed on Calvary. Secondly, the bride was to make herself ready. During this particular time, she was to prepare herself to engage in the marriage to her bridegroom. Now, maybe you've heard of a hope chest. I don't hear people. Do people still talk about hope chests anymore? Like, I don't think that's a thing anymore. I think that's been replaced with bridal showers and wedding parties. But the idea was that a, a, a woman would gather this chest and she would put into it all kinds of things that she thought she might need one day when she gets married. So maybe in there she would have a, a, a table, uh, a tablecloth or linens. Uh, maybe there would be some, some valuable, you know, china that had been passed down through her family. But it was a way of making and preparing for the bridegroom. It's the same thing. We see this aspect here in Revelation chapter 19 in which the mention of wedding clothes is presented to us. It was granted in verse 8 to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, every single bride is concerned about what she's going to wear on her wedding day. It was a big deal when Lori got her wedding dress. Her and her mom traveled several hours to go to different wedding dress designers and to look at what they offered and uh, to finally finalize on a single dress. And Lori was you know, taking a big step of faith because the designer of this dress actually had it sent off to Asia. Had it sewn. Lori had never seen her wedding dress until like two weeks, a week, a week before the actual wedding. And so she was trusting that this person was going to do what they had said, and they were going to prepare the perfect dress for her. And she was. She was absolutely beautiful that day. She trusted this person to make her ready. But here in this particular passage, we see that it's the bride that gets herself ready. And this idea of clothing is a powerful image that goes throughout the whole of the scriptures. After Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, when they sinned, it says that they realized they were naked, unclothed, and then they felt ashamed. So what does God do? God comes and he provides something for them to cover their shame. Now, I've never had this dream, but it always seems to be in television shows and movies. But somebody has to make a big presentation. They have to speak in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And they always dream, what? 
that they wake up and they're making the speech and they're wearing no clothes. Now, maybe you've had that experience. I personally haven't, but that sense of shame is one of the most powerful of all experiences. It's one of the most powerful emotions that you can endure. One pastor describes this kind of experience in one of the early church fathers, Origen. Now, if you know anything about the story of Origen, he was anxious. He wanted to give his life for Jesus. He wanted to be a martyr. And so he came up with this idea that he would have this open act of defiance against the nation of Rome. And in this act of defiance, they would put him to death and his blood would be shed as a martyr. Now, his mother recognized the foolishness of his plan and she wanted to protect. She wanted to preserve his life. So what she did was she hid his clothes from him. She kept him safe simply by taking his clothes and hiding them where he couldn't find them. Now, he was willing to stand up to the nation of Rome to lose his life, but he was unwilling because of the shame associated with it to go out of his house naked. So she preserved his life in this sense. It's the same kind of thing that we're delivered from here in this particular passage. We will not be exposed for the sinners that we are. The past. The things that we've done in secret that we think no one else knows about that God sees will not be exposed because we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We will be clothed, John says, splendidly in heaven, being hid from shame because it's been permanently removed from us through the blood of Christ. But what are these clothes? Well, the text makes it clear. It says that this fine linen, this clothing with which the bride makes herself ready, they are the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, here we talk a lot about the fact that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not through works of ourselves. So then what is John doing by saying, well, these fine linens that she clothes and makes herself ready, well, they're actually righteous deeds of saints. What does he mean? Well, what you see is that she doesn't make these clothes for herself, but they're given to her. John says it was granted to her. This is the divine passive because salvation from first to last. Is a work of God's grace. We are saved by the grace of God when we place all of our hope and trust and dependence in the person of Jesus and Jesus alone. But what happens when we're given these beautiful clothes, this fine linen, it transforms. Christ is the one who redeems. Christ is the one who purchases. Christ is the one who makes the church beautiful. And in believing the gospel, our hearts and our lives and transformed. This wonderful, matchless work of Jesus changes us from the inside out. So the bride makes herself ready by putting on the righteousness of Christ, by believing in faith the promises of the gospel. And if we are really comprehending the truth of this, that God has washed away our sin and that God has presented to us by faith the righteousness of Christ to clothe ourselves in, then it changes us from the inside out. Well, how does that happen? It happens as we in faith look to Jesus to be the one who covers us completely. When we believe the gospel and we realize that because of the shed blood of Christ, because of what he has done in the person, the work, the teachings, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that God is completely and totally accepting of sinners. Because of the work of Christ, that frees us up with having to try to please God. We no longer have to please God because we've been fully accepted with open arms as beloved sons and daughters. So what does that enable us to do? It take our attention away from trying to please God and we turn it towards focusing on his glory. 
and serving Him and worshiping Him and obeying Him. So we're no longer trying to focus on pleasing God. That's already been done by Jesus. That is a finished work of Christ. And now we turn our attention and the righteous deeds become those acts that flow out of a heart that's been changed and transformed by this powerful truth. That God saves sinners. And he saves them to the utmost. So there's this great wedding celebration that's going to take place. Jesus is the groom. And you and I, his church, are the bride. So where are we in this whole process? William Hendrickson writes, he says, In Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the wedding was announced. Jesus comes and the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood and the betrothal took place. The price was paid on Calvary. And so now we're in that interval period before the bridegroom returns and the end where we see the marriage of the Lamb. He says the church yearns for this moment. The church on earth as well as the church in heaven waits in anxious anticipation. So we're in that period of time of waiting. That Jesus has gone back to prepare a room for his bride. And we're to make ourselves ready. We're in that interval period. So what would you expect John to write about next? If the groom has gone off and we're in this interval period, you would expect that John would write about the arrival of the groom, which is what we see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes. The one comes riding on a white horse. He is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head or many diadems. And he's a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. These identifiers, these descriptions, they come from the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapter one and chapter two, we see Jesus as the one who has eyes like the flame of fire. In chapter three, he's called faithful and true, which is repeated in here. He has a sharp sword that is said to proceed from his mouth in which to come and to judge. And he comes as the conquering judge of God's wrath. He comes, John says, as the word of God, specifically the word of God, a judgment. The ultimate decree of God's justice that took place in chapter five as the lamb opened the scroll is now being completed here in this picture. Then there's a sudden transition if you skip down to verse 17 and 18 in which the, John records an angel who's standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free, slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its images. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burned with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, just as the angel in verse nine talks about the invitation to the wedding supper of Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's another angel who issues an invitation for another feast. But this is not a feast of celebration. This is a feast of judgment. Look who's invited. Scavenging birds of the air. 
And what is it that they'll eat? They feed on the body of all of God's enemies. Listen to how Deuteronomy chapter 28 describes a similar fate. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. David says the same thing when he goes out to fight Israel's army. You remember the story, David and Goliath. He says to him, today I will feed your body to the birds of the air. It's a covenant curse. This was a humiliating death and a faith that the entire ancient world recognized as a curse. This symbolizes the faith that awaits the enemies of our God. So who are these enemies? Verse 18 makes it clear. They're the kings, the captains, the mighty men, the riders, both free and slaves, small and great. And what is being described here is the day of Armageddon, the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God, which was predicted earlier on in chapter 6 when that sixth seal was opened. There we also read about the objects of God's judgments, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone slave and free. We also see that now the kings, the ten kings which showed up in chapter 17 have become the kings of the earth. Their power has increased and the gathering for this war is the same one that was described for us when the bowl of wrath was poured out in Revelation 16. There, John says that there were these demonic spirits that went out and they gathered together all the leaders of the world. They assembled them for this great battle on the day of the great day of God Almighty. And so they assembled them at Armageddon. Now, no war is actually mentioned in specifics here. Why? Because it really isn't a fight. There is no contest. The rider on the white horse just ultimately defeats his enemies. The power of the word of God when it's poured out will just simply consume those who stand in opposition to God. You see, something of, of the power of Jesus and the word of God, when the, the Roman soldiers come to, to take Jesus captive and to present him before the leaders, and they say, we're looking for the one who's called Jesus, and he answers them in that great covenant language. He says, I am he, and they all fall back. Just at the mention of him being the great I am, his power in a little bit is unleashed and they're just overwhelmed and overcome by it. There is no battle because it's not a fight. His enemies are ultimately destroyed. The climax of the war has taken place. This battle that's been going on since the first coming of Jesus is now ultimately ended here with the Messiah victorious over every single enemy. Every false prophet. All of those structures that set themselves up again in opposition to the rule and reign of God. All of those things that have been deceiving the people of God throughout the centuries. They're destroyed. They're ultimately consumed. The beasts, the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Eugene Peterson describes these two aspects of Revelation 19 in which he says that salvation is on one hand the intimacy and the celebration of festivities of marriage, but it's also the aggressive battle and the defeat of evil. Salvation is neither of these things by itself. It is both two energies, the embrace of love and the assault on evil. In polar tension, each one defined by its opposite, each feeding into the other. So this morning, are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are you going to this great feast where the birds of the air consume the enemies of God? 
there's actually a blessing in Revelation chapter 19. There's seven Beatitudes or words of blessing that take place throughout this book. One of them being here in Revelation 19, in which the angel says to me in verse 9, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So that's why we celebrate communion. It's because this is just a picture, a reminder, a taste of what you and I are waiting for. 